For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Okay, we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 through 5, which I entitled Demolishing Strongholds. This comes directly from our text, but we want to answer three questions tonight. The first is, what is spiritual warfare? This is something that the Bible talks about frequently. The second question we want to ask is, how do we engage in this spiritual war? And finally, what's at stake? And in just these few verses, I think that Paul gives us some clarity about what it means to be engaged in this spiritual war. He begins in verse 3 by saying, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. So the New Testament really depicts believers engaged in a struggle, a spiritual war. And I think that that's difficult for us, I think, as modern readers to envision that we're engaged in some sort of spiritual battle, partly because I think that we have some skepticism about this concept of Satan. You know, when we think about God's enemy, a lot of Christians actually don't know whether they actually believe in Satan. According to George Barna, a sociologist and Christian author, he suggests that 67% of self-described Christians believe that Satan is just a symbol of evil. And another 8% were unsure that they believed about the existence of a personal Satan. You know, whenever you start talking about Satan, things get a little bit weird, especially if you're in public. I remember one time I was uh, reading uh, a spiritual book with a high school dude, and we were at a coffee shop, and we were reading something that was about Satan, and every time I would say Satan or he would read Satan, I started feeling really self-conscious, and I started sort of looking around, and I noticed that this older couple was just sitting there staring at us <laughs> in disbelief that we were talking about this. They had this puzzled look on, plastered on their face. And that made me feel even more self-conscious. So as we were reading through the book, every time Satan would come up, I found myself saying his name discreetly, Satan. <laughs> and without fail, I would hear, you know, the crinkling of the newspaper and I'd see this woman with her eyes peering over the newspaper, looking at us with puzzled glances. You know, today, the concept of Satan is just really an odd thing. It's almost like this mythological being. And we have a lot of misconceptions about who Satan is. It raises really this question, why do so many people have a hard time believing in Satan? I believe that one reason why many people, including believers, don't believe in a personal Satan is because Satan himself has engineered this. You know, I was watching a movie many years ago called The Usual Suspects, a great movie. And Kevin Spacey plays this guy named Verbal Kent, who's sort of this cowering criminal. And the detective is interrogating him and asking him about these series of murders. And finally, he, he tells this detective, this guy Kaiser Soze, this mysterious figure, was actually the one responsible for killing all these people. 
And so when they started pressing him and asking where Kaiser Soze was, he said, my guess is he disappeared. And there was this one line that he said that really just stuck out to me. He says, the greatest trick the devil ever played was to convince the world that he doesn't exist. I think there's a lot of truth to that. When you think about an enemy that you can't see or you don't see coming, that's really the most dangerous enemy that you face. And so it makes sense that the evil one is not only the one who authored this lie that he doesn't exist, but also is the one who perpetuates this lie. You know, we have a lot of misconceptions about who Satan is. When you think about pop culture, there are a lot of things that we envision when we think of Satan or when we hear Satan. A lot of times he's this monstrous figure with horns. He's popularly depicted in, you know, different uh, heavy metal album covers like Iron Maiden is this, you know, creepy uh, figure with horns and kind of has bat-like ears. Sometimes he's humorously depicted like in South Park. But, you know, we have all these different pictures in our mind that come up whenever we think of Satan. The reality is the Bible says that Satan actually was one of God's greatest created beings, that he's an angelic being. And he's so magnificent that, and powerful that he was able to persuade a third of the angelic hosts, the angelic beings, to rebel against God. That his pride swelled up inside of him, and he believed that he could actually be like God. So he threw off God's authority and decided to lead this rebellion that's been going on ever since. And that he actually incited human beings to rebel against God. But it raises also another question. What's his aim? What, what's he trying to do? If, if God is actually the one who created Satan, then there's really nothing that Satan could do to destroy God. So what's his aim? We read in the New Testament that at Jesus' birth, Satan sought to try to kill Jesus from the very beginning. That he plotted his murder through King Herod. That even in his ministry, he was able to convince Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus so that he would be crucified by the Romans. And at the cross, Satan believed that he actually had won, that he had defeated God. And yet he didn't realize that he was actually playing into God's hand, that God intended for Jesus to come as a man and die on the cross. Colossians 2 verse 15 tells us that God disarmed the powers and authorities, and that he, Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Satan believed that by killing Jesus, he had defeated God's plan, and yet he accomplished God's plan. One of the main accusations that Satan launches against God and his character to us is that God is this controlling God, that he wants to basically take over our lives. He wants to take away all the good things that will make us happy and to cause us to follow all these rules. And yet, what the cross demonstrated was God's love and mercy and his willingness to give to us sacrificially. 
If you're unfamiliar with the story of the Bible, one of the things that God want, wanted to do from the very beginning of hum, humanity's fall from him was to try to restore us back to him. And this culminated in God actually sending his own son, Jesus, to come and die and to pay for the moral wrongdoing we deserve to pay. And so by doing this, God actually demonstrated his love and mercy. So why does he target us? Why, why does Satan have a personal vendetta against us, human beings? I believe that since Satan knows that he can't do anything against God, that he goes for the next best thing. He goes after the people whom God loves. So one of the primary aims that Satan has in his strategy is to actually try to drive a wedge between us and God so that we will experience eternal separation from God. So one of the tactics that he has is trying to deceive us, to blind our minds so that we'll never hear the message of Christ, which ultimately brings us freedom. Satan hates God, and he aims to hurt God's people. <clears throat> One of the things that we can note here is that Satan's desire to destroy us actually intensified after Jesus' death. At his defeat, he realized that the cross spelled his ultimate doom. So this redoubled his efforts to try to destroy God's people. And that's why the Bible talks about us being engaged in this intense struggle, spiritual struggle, where God's enemy seeks to destroy the people whom he loves. John 12, verse 31 and through 33 says, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Jesus predicted this before his death. And I'm certain that when Satan saw Jesus triumph through the cross, that this infuriated him and caused him to uh, want to destroy God's followers. In verse 4 through 5, Paul says, The weapons we fight are not with weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So there's a lot to unpack here. First of all, Paul says that we are to demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. This phrase literally means every high thing lifted up, which denotes a tower or a raised rampart. You know, in ancient warfare, whenever a general would siege a city, typically the general would surround the city with, a, with his army and they would try to penetrate the city walls. And typically what they would do is they would go after these towers because the curtain wall would surround the city, but they would have these towers that would flank these walls every, you know, 30 or 40 feet. That way, when the enemy tried to scale the walls, those who were inside the castle could actually shoot arrows at those who were trying to breach the wall. 
These ramparts could be the walls, but also were sometimes earthen ramparts to slow down the enemy as they were coming up. So one of the things that ancient generals needed to do to overcome a city, to, to breach the walls, was to, to destroy these towers and to break this earthenware in order to get through. So Paul uses this metaphor and says that these arguments, knowledge, and these thoughts are really at the center, at the heart of spiritual warfare. That there are ideas, accusations, lies that God's enemy propagates that prevents people from ever investigating Christ or that block believers from actually living radically for him to engage in the mission he's called us to carry out. Notice Paul says that we fight to demolish these strongholds. I think a lot of times when we envision Satan, we think of us defending ourselves against Satan and his attacks, that we're here to withstand Satan. But Paul actually describes this as an offensive battle. And this actually fits with the whole picture that the New Testament gives about spiritual warfare, that we've actually defeated Satan, that the victory has been secured. And that what God calls on us to do is to complete the mop-up action, to free the captives whom Satan has held through his lies. So we're just demolishing these strongholds, these arguments, these lies about God and his character. Now, some churches have fallen into a defensive strategy. And most churches that do this often are ingrown. They look to protect themselves from the world. And I think that when a church falls into this defensive strategy, it becomes sick. You know, God doesn't want us to be a community that looks inward and one that tries to create a hedge of protection around itself to protect itself from the evil people out there or the evil values that are coming to creep into God's community. Instead, God calls on us to carry out a mission to free those who are enslaved to these lies about who God is. I think it's important for us to underscore people are not the enemy. Okay? People are often the victim of Satan and his lies. People who are ensnared in a way of life. I mean, I, I've met some people who are so far, do, uh, far down along in this life of addiction that it's almost as if their free will is non-existent. They're almost incapable of breaking out of this slavish lifestyle they're living. And you can believe that, that's, that Satan wants to see that happen. For us to, to live in a pattern of rebellion from God that we, we are at a place really where our humanity is diminished. No wonder uh, Jesus says in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Notice that in this context, Jesus wasn't saying, I'm going to give you power so that you can withstand the world. 
He gave them power so that they could go out into the world to accomplish his mission. So one of the things that we need to combat is this defensive mentality that we're here to just protect ourselves from the world. Churches that lose its sense of mission often erect these, these towers and protection to shield themselves from the world. And they start to view people in the world as the enemy, as the evil that's encroaching upon the church. And that's why you see a lot of churches that are ingrown. Often they are xenophobic. And they, they're... Uh, you know, self-righteous. And that's one of the reasons why many, many people, I think, in the world dislike Christians because they're irrelevant. Now, when we look at the New Testament, it gives us many different pictures of the church. And I think that God gives us these metaphors to describe what the church should look like. You know, one of the things that God says of the church is that it's like Christ's bride or that we are like God's field, or that we are like a human body. So he uses all these different metaphors to depict the kind of relationship we should have with one another, and also the kind of relationship we should have with God. One kind of relationship that he describes is one of a family, that the body of Christ or the church should become sort of like a family, and I think this resonates with a lot of people, especially when you come from a dysfunctional home or a broken home. You enter into a loving community and you find the kind of love and acceptance that you've been craving. But I think it's easy when you enter into a community like that and you enjoy that kind of love to sort of feel like, well, we should just kind of keep this together. And maybe what we should do is we should just love one another, keep this going. But God also calls on us to carry out a mission. So in addition to being a family, God also wants us to be like a freedom-fighting force, to go out and, and to tell people about the message of Christ so that they could be freed from Satan, Satan's lies. And so we need to fight against this mentality where what matters is the love that we have for one another and forget that God wants us to love people in the world as well. Paul says the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. So he describes these weapons as spiritual weapons. And <clears throat> I think that what he's describing is that Christians must counter each of Satan's lies and accusations with the truth. That there is a battle of ideas if these strongholds that Satan erects that prevent people from knowing about God are ideas, then what we're tearing down are these ideas that are preventing people from seeing God's truth. One great example of this is in Luke chapter four, where Jesus early on in his ministry is out in the middle of the wilderness and we read that Satan came and started to tempt Jesus. And at each point, it's interesting because when Satan raised questions about God's character, Jesus would always fire back with the scripture, with truth. For example, in one interaction, Satan says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. 
It's interesting. He says, if you are the son of God, as if Jesus like didn't know that he was the son of God. But what was he really trying to do by saying that? Wasn't he really trying to incite Jesus? Wasn't he trying to provoke him to demonstrate his omnipotence, to throw off dependence upon God the Father and to exert his own power? I mean, what Jesus could have said was, I am the son of God. Have you read the Old Testament? It's predicted my coming and my career and my eventual death. But instead, Jesus says, for it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. He doesn't reason with Satan. He doesn't try to persuade Satan. He declares the truth. And he cites Deuteronomy chapter 8, which I think helps us understand what Jesus was getting at. You know, in the Old Testament, when, when God freed the Israelites from Egypt, they were wandering around in the wilderness for like 40 years. And during that time, God provided this special food called manna. Each day they would come out and there was like this, this substance on the floor that they would collect and they could turn it into like bread or cake and they could eat, you know, they would eat it every single day. And this manna was this unknown substance. And, you know, the word manna literally means, what is it? And so, you know, you can imagine the Israelites, the first time they walk out, they're like, Moses, what is it? And he's like, what is it? <laughs> Must have been a confusing conversation. <laughs> but one of the really interesting things about this manna is that at the end of the day, it would spoil. So they would have to go out each day trusting that God would provide for them. And Moses actually explains why God did this. He says, God humbled you in the desert by feeding you manna to teach you that man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the, the father's mouth. So what God was teaching the Israelites was to depend on him. And so Jesus, by quoting this, in understanding the context, was really firing back at the evil one with God's truth. He understood exactly what Satan was trying to do. And so likewise, when it comes to spiritual warfare, we're not trying to have some sort of power encounter with Satan, where we're trying to show him up with superior intellect. Instead, we're trying to knock down these these walls, these strongholds that he has raised up against the knowledge of God. Also, we can impact people in other ways besides the truth. You know, as we spend time in prayer, God tells us that he's at work behind the scenes, changing people's hearts, softening people's hearts so that when we encounter them, when we talk to them finally about the truth of God, they're more receptive. Look at what Jesus says in John 16, verse 8, that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin and of God's righteousness in the coming judgment. I've had encounters like this where I'm praying for somebody who historically has been very resistant to God and his truth, and then I get lunch with that person, and they're starting to talk to me about spiritual things. They're asking me questions about God. What was happening was that the Holy Spirit was working in this person's heart, paving the way for a spiritual conversation. 
You know, when people come into our community, they see the love that we have for one another. That can be so striking that it really gives them evidence for God and who he is. I think the last question we want to ask then is what's at stake? So we already answered what is spiritual warfare? How do we conduct ourselves in a spiritual war? And finally, what's at stake? I think the evil, one lie, the evil one's lies and accusations often work together as this interlocking system that weakens our faith. When you think about Satan's lies and accusations, often they're self-validating. This intrusive thought enters our mind, and then our experience seems to validate those lies. Also, there's this irresistible logic. Once we bite into and, and believe in one lie, often it leads to another one and to another one. And it's this slippery slope that we find ourselves on once we start believing Satan and what he says. Finally, there's this internal consistency. There's a coherence to his arguments that forms this interlocking system where we find ourselves unable to refute our experience and these, these uh, beliefs, these, these doubts that we have about God. So let's look at some examples of these. I think one example that comes to mind, it's very common, is the question, can I really trust God if he allowed this bad thing to happen to me? You know, suffering enters your life or one of your family members' lives and you start to question, why would God allow this to happen? This is tragic. This is senseless. I mean, God is loving and he's capable of stopping this and yet he allowed this to happen. And often, this, these questions that come to mind give way to even further doubts. Typically, when we are suffering and we're questioning God and his character, we start finding ourselves questioning the Bible. We look at different problem passages and we, we find ourselves questioning whether God is actually a good God. And when we talk to people about our doubts, often we don't give God the benefit of the doubt if we're in a state of unbelief. Really, no answer, even if it's a plausible answer, seems satisfying. When we pray, we feel like we can't feel the presence of God. So all of those things further confirm our, init our initial suspicion about God and his character. And then, over time, we start questioning, is the Bible even reliable? Is God even real? Am I just making all of this stuff up? I mean, have you ever been there? I have. And so you find yourself in the stranglehold of Satan's lies about who God is and what he says. One of the real important things is that when we have these thoughts, it's okay to have these thoughts, but it's important for us to combat them with God's truth. In these moments where we're questioning God as we're suffering, it's important for us to acknowledge that God use one of the, the most terrible types of suffering, like crucifixion, to produce one of the greatest acts of redemption. 
in Jesus Christ. You know, that God can use incredible suffering for incredible good. So it's when we have these thoughts that it's important for us to counteract them with God's truth. Now, we should say that there's nothing wrong with having doubts. I want to be crystal clear about that, okay? Because we all have doubts, but there's really a difference between doubt and unbelief. When you have doubts, you still give God the benefit of the doubt. Whenever you hear maybe a persuasive argument, you're willing to say, okay, I don't have 100% certainty on this, but I'm willing to trust God. I believe that he is good. I'm satisfied. Whereas when we're stuck in unbelief, nothing is going to be satisfying. God has to exonerate himself. He's guilty until proven innocent in our minds. So there's really a huge difference between doubt and unbelief. Once we find ourselves in the, in the chokehold of unbelief, it's really hard to get out of that. What about this one? Circumstances and people around me are responsible for my unhappiness. One of the real striking studies that I've read recently is that 60% of college students in, in 2016 claim that they have severe anxiety. And 37% of college students say that they have crippling depression. And that fits my experience interacting with a lot of college-age people in our ministry. That people have a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression issues. And I think it's easy when we're feeling this way to look at our environment or the people around us and to, and to feel like, that's the reason I feel this way. These people, these things, that's the cause of my mental health problems. You know, we think about our inability to pay a bill, and that creates anxiety. For some of us, it's, it's about money. For others, it's just the thought of our future, the uncertainty of our future that creates anxiety. So a lot of times we feel this way and we tell ourselves, there's nothing I can do about this. I can't change my feelings. And yet it's interesting because we're not really a victim of our anxiety or our circumstances, contrary to what we believe. You know, the discovery of neuroplasticity is really interesting because it tells us that the way that we think, the way we train our minds, or even the behavior that we, we decide uh, to carry out actually can change the way our brain functions. So that, I think, contradicts this idea that I'm just really a victim of my anxiety or my depression. And yet, a lot of times we believe this, that there's nothing that we could do about it. And so we start pointing the finger at our roommates or our friends or our circumstances as really the basis for our anxiety. We feel like people have just so many crushing expectations of me, I can't handle it. So what happens is sometimes we, we start thinking, well, maybe I'll just self-medicate. Maybe I'll get high. Maybe it'll, that'll make me feel better. Or maybe what I should do is I should go and pursue success and achievement. That's going to be the thing that really gives me fulfillment. 
And yet, one of the things that, that God tells us is that, really in this passage, he says that we should take our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. That when we, when we just have this thought of anxiety and we, we feed into it, we believe it, we feed it, it often leads to other anxious thoughts that overwhelm us. Instead, what does God say? Well, Philippians chapter four, he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer, thanksgiving, and supplication, make your requests known to God. Notice he says that you should pray to God, but you should do so with thanksgiving. So it turns out that, you know, when we're feeling anxious, cataloging all the things that God has done for us and expressing gratitude to him actually helps alleviate some of the anxiety that we have because it helps us to see what God has done for us and to place our trust in him. Think about what Jesus says in Matthew chapter six, as we're worried about whether we're gonna be able to pay our bills. Jesus says, think about the birds. They don't sow and they don't reap and yet your heavenly father takes care of them. Aren't you much more, worth much more than these birds? He says, what person can extend their life by even one hour by worrying? You know, God says that he will take care of us, that he will provide for our needs. So it's important that when we have these thoughts, these intrusive thoughts that come into our mind, that we counteract them with God's truth and his promises. What about this one? Should I receive Christ? I remember feeling like I've looked at all the evidence and at least intellectually I'm convinced that God is real and that what Christ has done will actually give me salvation. And I remember standing sort of on the precipice of receiving Christ but being afraid because I'm like, man, if I invite God into my life, then he's going to start interfering. And I'm not sure I like that. I like to be in control of my life. He's going to start suggesting things that I don't want. And really, how do I know that God is actually going to give me good things and, and he's going to make me happy? You know what God says? In Romans 8.32, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously, graciously give us all things? God didn't spare even his own son for you. He gave his one and only son. And in doing so, doesn't that suggest that he'll give you everything that you need? Let's wrap up by looking at some keys to spiritual warfare. I think the first question we need to ask is, what lies have I been believing about God or myself? Often we feel doubt. We feel spiritual depression. We feel this low-grade sense of distrusting God. Often, we can trace that all back to some sort of belief that we have about God that's inaccurate, about his character. Something about ourselves. Often we feel like, you know, I, I, I always screw up. Every time I take two steps forward, it feels like I take three steps backward in my walk with God. 
And we fall into this defeatist mindset. I'm just never going to change, ever. And yet, what does God say? He says, we're no longer slaves to sin. And so, we need to evaluate what, what are the lies that we've been buying into that has led to us feeling this sense that, you know, God is not, he's not near. Or maybe we're struggling with unbelief. Secondly, we need to learn to stand behind God's word. For some of us, we don't know how to counteract these lies because we don't know God's truth. It's one of the main reasons why it's important for us to study God's truth. Not only so we could withstand Satan's lies and his accusations about God and about us, but also so that we can help liberate people who are trapped in this mindset where God is trying to control them. And that he's this taskmaster. Finally, we need to exercise faith in what he says. It's not enough for us to to know the truth of God. We actually need to believe what it says. It's not like this incantation that we say, and then eventually, you know, Satan is going to stop. But we need to actually trust what God's word says. All right, why don't we just uh, pray, um, and then we can wrap up. We believe, Lord, that understanding spiritual warfare isn't just an intellectual thing, but it's something that you must reveal to us. Pray that you would give us an opening of the eyes to see the spiritual dimension, to see that there are many people who believe false things about you and that that prevents them from actually investigating you and eventually coming to know you. I pray that Uh, you would use us to help clear up some of those misconceptions, Lord. We know that um, you give us the great privilege of breaking breaking down uh, some of these beliefs that people have um, about you. And um, it's awesome that we get to participate in that great work. I pray especially for those of us, Lord, who might be on the edge of turning to you and inviting you into their lives. I pray that they would have the courage to trust you, even though they may not have 100% certainty, but that um, they would uh, take a you know, step of faith and see whether or not you're actually real. And um, we thank you for anybody who did that. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.